Church. We're glad that you've chose to spend your morning here with us. Now, we've been in a sermon series called Tough Questions, wrestling with some of the most common, most difficult questions that many people have today about the Christian faith. And over the past several weeks, I've wanted you to imagine that this entire sermon series is really just one ongoing conversation with someone who is skeptical of the Christian faith. We've talked about whether or not there really can be only one true religion. That was week one. The skeptic may ask something along the lines of, well, is it really reasonable for Christians to hold that their God and their faith are superior or qualitatively different than all other gods and all other faiths? The Christian would answer that question by saying, yes, because the Bible really does teach that we worship one God, that there really is only one true faith, that there really is only one way and one truth and one life, and that is Jesus. Maybe then the skeptic would segue into a second question about our faith and say, okay, maybe the Bible does teach that stuff, but can we really trust the Bible. The Christian would then respond, yes, we really can trust the Bible because the Bible, particularly its claims about Jesus, have stood the test of time, even under immense and frequent historical and archaeological scrutiny. The Bible has stood the test of time. Now, that's two questions down in the conversation, but of course, good conversations like this can go on for quite some time, especially when you have two people who are respectful, two people who are informed of each other's opinions, which I certainly hope would characterize me and would characterize all of you as well. So as the conversation continues, maybe a third question would be asked. How can you really hold to all of Christianity's claims in light of everything science has taught us. After all, doesn't science show that in multiple cases the Bible is simply off base? I mean, sure, maybe the Bible is an important religious and historical document, but really, isn't it just the ancient reflections of people who didn't know all the things that we know now? You could sum up the question by asking, aren't science and faith incompatible? Aren't science and faith incompatible? Well, that's what we'll be talking about this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Psalm 19, verse 1. Keep your finger there on Psalm 19, 1. We're going to come back to it multiple times. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 391. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning as our gift to you. But before we read Psalm 19, 1, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for everything we know about the world around us, but especially everything we know about you. God, we are grateful that, like we sang earlier, we can sing it and we can mean it when we say that this is your world. This is our Father's world. And God, I pray that as we talk this morning about the sometimes difficult relationship that science and faith have, that we could leave here even more confident, more assured, and more bold in our faith in you as the one true God, the creator of everything that we see. We thank you for your son Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead, who ascended to be with you, and will return and establish his kingdom for all to see. 
God, we look forward to that day. We love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's a simple verse. It's a short verse, but again, we're going to come back to it. But before we do that, we need to address some pretty big ideas that people often think about when it comes to the issue of science and faith, the relationship that these two things have. Number one, something we need to get out on the table from the very beginning is that science cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. It can't prove or disprove the existence of God. Science is limited in its scope. There are still many questions about our natural world that we simply don't have the answers to. Many scientists will tell you that they're less in awe of all the stuff that we've learned, all the stuff that we know, and more in awe of all the things that we don't know. It's like that old saying, the more I learn, the less I know. Scientists often feel the same way. Science is limited in its scope, especially because It is meant to address questions within the natural world. There are only so many questions that science can answer. It can't answer questions that transcend the natural world. Questions about things like the human soul or questions about things like life after death. Questions that all of us, for some strange reason, seem to wrestle with. If God is supernatural, which we believe he is... If we're talking about some kind of supernatural being or person or force, or however you want to think about it, we shouldn't expect science to prove or disprove his existence. Because science is concerned with things of the natural world. And the idea of God is a supernatural thing. But not only is science limited, science is not settled. Part of the beauty of science is that it demands constant re-examination of what we think we know is true. Now, there will be constantly new scientific discoveries that reshape old scientific discoveries, and in some cases, correct old scientific discoveries. There are discoveries that were made today, and discoveries that we made a year from now, that people think are 100% true. And then 50 years from now, Some scientists will come along and say, man, what were those people in 2015 thinking? They clearly had no idea what they were talking about. Because science is never settled. Science can't prove or disprove the existence of God. Science is limited in its scope. Science is never settled. But then on top of that, the answer to the big question we're talking about this morning, the answer comes pretty early. Science and faith are not mutually exclusive. Science and faith can coexist. They are compatible. Consider the fact that some of history's greatest scientists considered themselves religious. Nicolaus Copernicus is the man who theorized that the sun was at the center of our solar system, that the earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around. Copernicus was a religious believer. Same with Galileo Galilei, considered by many to be the father of physics, the father of observational astronomy. Galileo was a religious believer, even though the church didn't always treat him well. 
Francis Bacon, who is considered the father of the scientific method. He, too, was a religious believer. Isaac Newton, the man who you learned about in elementary school, who watched an apple fall from a tree and thus studied gravity. Isaac Newton was a religious believer. All of these men throughout history, some of the greatest scientists you can name, would look at Psalm 19.1 and say, we affirm that. We affirm that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. But it's not only some of the greatest scientific minds in history who consider themselves religious. There are great scientists in the world right now who consider themselves religious. For example, Francis Collins is a well-known Christian author, but he's also the leader of the Human Genome Project, a research project discovering the makeup of human DNA. Alistair McGrath is well-known as a Christian theologian, but he also has a doctorate in biophysics from Oxford. Michael Behe is a Catholic, but also a well-respected molecular biologist, a religious believer. Owen Gingrich is a Christian, and he's also a Harvard astronomer. Rodney Stark is a church historian and sociologist, and Stark argues that the number of scientists who consider themselves religious, that number has increased in recent decades. There was a study done in 1997 by Edward Larson and Larry Widom, and that study found that roughly 40% of scientists believe in a God who actively communicates with humanity, at least through prayer. 40%. That's no small chunk. 40% said they don't believe in that kind of God, and 20% said they don't know. What's interesting about that study is that the same study was performed 80 years earlier, and the numbers were almost the exact same. 40% believe, 40% don't, 20% weren't sure. If that shows us anything, it gets rid of the myth that scientists today aren't religious. There are plenty of good, well-respected scientists out there who are religious believers. There are scientists out there who, just like the scientists of history, would reaffirm Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. On top of that, there are reputable religious organizations that are devoted to thinking through the relationship between science and faith. BioLogos is a well-known organization that is devoted to understanding modern science and wrestling with many of the questions that modern science brings about, all while holding to sound and orthodox Christian doctrine. Groups like BioLogos would affirm Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And if you're not yet convinced, there are Christian figures throughout the history of the church that have spoken to the relationship between science and faith. St. Augustine in the 5th century, late in his life, took very seriously the need for Christians to be informed about the latest scientific discoveries. Augustine said that when Christians can't speak knowledgeably about modern science, it doesn't do the church, and it doesn't do the cause of Christ any favors. Augustine says if we can't speak knowledgeably about the things of our natural world, why would people believe us 
when we try to tell them about salvation and eternity and life after death. B.B. Warfield was a conservative theologian who consistently defended the Bible as the inspired word of God. And yet even B.B. Warfield took very seriously the claims that Charles Darwin made about evolution. He didn't shy away from them. He didn't run away from them. He instead took them seriously and wrestled with them in the context of the Bible and wrestled with them as a religious believer. Charles Hodge, another famous theologian, wrote this. There are some good men who are much too ready to adopt the opinions and theories of scientific men and to adopt forced and unnatural interpretations of the Bible to bring it to accord with those opinions. There are others who not only refuse to admit the opinions of men, but science itself to have any voice in the interpretation of Scripture. Both of these errors should be avoided. So according to Charles Hodge, there are two groups of people. One group is all too willing to sacrifice Christian teaching, all too willing to sacrifice the Bible on the altar of modern science. Hodge says, don't be like them. Don't give up sound Christian teaching just for the latest, greatest scientific discovery. But Hodge also says, don't be like those people who refuse to respect or acknowledge the findings of science and thus ignorantly cling to their Bibles because they think that they're defending it when really they're only scared. Hodge says, don't be like any of those people. Be committed to your Christian doctrine. Be committed to the Bible as the inspired word of God. But also take science seriously is what Hodge would say. St. Augustine, B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, all these people we've talked about so far, they all affirm Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Science is not absolute. Science is not all-knowing. And science is certainly not settled. And we as followers of Jesus don't have to choose between good science and authentic Christian faith. We don't have to choose one or the other. Christians and theologians and scientists throughout history have shown that. Christians and scientists today show that. And as we've talked about these different groups of people, we've kept coming back to Psalm 19.1. It's an important verse. It's a verse that we could read over and over again. It's a great verse for you to memorize in the week ahead. It's not very long. It'd be very easy for you to do. But does the Bible have anything else to say besides Psalm 19.1? Anything else at all to help us as we wrestle with the relationship between science and faith? Well, allow me to suggest Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Romans 1 is a jam-packed verse. There is a ton to talk about in this verse, a ton to digest. But we're just going to look at three verses, really. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... 
Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul says in Romans 1 that there are people out there who see the world around them and should know something about God. And yet they suppress the truth. They resist the truth. They don't want to admit who God is, even though everything around them seems to be screaming the attributes of God. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us that even though God is supernatural and thus science can't prove or disprove his existence, even though God is supernatural, we can learn something about him by examining the world that he created. Just a few minutes ago, we sang, this is my father's world. We believe that. And Romans 1 tells us if you look at the world, you can learn something about God. In the world of theology, this is often referred to as general revelation. Nature and creation, the world around us, they show us enough to learn some things about God, but not enough to actually save us from sin. That's why the special revelation of Scripture is so incredibly important. But what do we learn about God as we look at the world around us? Paul says that there are invisible attributes that creation shows off. It says that it shows his eternal power, his divine nature. But what else can we learn? Well, as we look at the world, we learn that God has ordered the universe. God has ordered the universe. Many people would refer to this as the fine-tuning Argument: The idea that our universe is so fine-tuned that it could not possibly be a coincidence. Maybe you've heard examples about how if the earth was one foot closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. But if it was one foot further away, we'd all freeze. Or if the earth's gravitational pull was just a little bit stronger, we'd all be crushed. But if it was a little bit weaker, we'd all float away. Steven Weinberg is a physicist and Nobel laureate, and he writes, Life as we know it would be impossible if any one of several physical qualities had slightly different values. Michael Turner is an astrophysicist, and he writes, The precision is as if one could throw a dart across the entire universe and hit a bullseye one millimeter in diameter on the other side. People would look at that evidence and rightly come to the conclusion that this is no coincidence. It is completely impossible for our world to sustain life if it all came about purely by chance or randomly. That's what we learn about God when we look at nature. Another thing we learn about God as we look at nature is something cannot come from nothing. Sounds like a simple argument, but something cannot come from nothing. Aristotle was the first person to really talk about this 2,300 years ago. Aristotle said something cannot come from nothing. Thus, either the universe is eternal, it just always has been, or someone created it. Aristotle came to the conclusion that the universe is eternal. Stephen Hawking, the author of A Brief History of Time, writes... So long as the universe had a beginning, we could suppose it had a creator. 
Christians believe that the universe did have a beginning, that the universe has not always existed, and God is the one who started it. It did not come about randomly. Nothing that we see came about by chance. Something cannot come from nothing. The universe that we see was created by God, and it had a starting point. That's what Christians believe. Francis Collins, who we mentioned earlier, writes, I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. Again, we sang earlier, this is my father's world. This is our father's world. The universe had a beginning. And the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Bible who sent his son to die on a cross for us, he is the one who started it all. Science is not absolute. We don't have to choose between science and faith. And the Bible explicitly tells us if you want to learn something about God, look at the creation around you. Look at nature. Now that's all well and good, but if we're really honest about this conversation, the science and faith conversation, there are some things that people simply have a hard time getting past. There are some things that people just simply have a hard time believing, have a hard time understanding, especially with this question. For example, many people will ask, okay, well, what about the book of Genesis? What do we do with that? Well, there's always debate about how to interpret Genesis, how to understand the creation account of Genesis 1, and whether or not it can or even should be reconciled with modern scientific discoveries like evolution. The truth is that good, faithful Christians can interpret the passage differently. And one can hold a doctrinally sound interpretation of the book of Genesis while still acknowledging and respecting scientific findings. A great example of this is an author by the name of John Walton, an Old Testament professor. He writes books about this kind of thing, if you're ever interested. But not only do people wrestle with the question of Genesis, many people will wrestle with the question of miracles. I mean, what do you do with miracles? After all, we know now through scientific advancement and medical technology that virgins don't have babies. And we know that dead people don't get up and walk. That's not how it works. But the truth is that ancient people knew that stuff too. You didn't have to have modern science to know that. They knew that virgins didn't have babies. They knew that dead people don't walk out of tombs. They understood that just as well as we do. They knew, just like we know, that type, things like that, they're not naturally possible. They defy the laws of nature. But the truth is that that's the whole point of a miracle. That's the whole idea. A miracle is something that absolutely, 100%, explicitly and obviously defies the laws of nature, and yet it happens anyway. That's what a miracle is. Alvin Plattinga writes that the argument that miracles can't happen because they defy the laws of nature is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his lost car keys 
only under the street light on the grounds that the light was better there. In fact, it would go the drunk one better. It would insist that because the lights would be hard, because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. To say that miracles can't happen because they defy the laws of nature is the equivalent of saying that because my keys would be hard to find in the dark, then they have to be under the light. That simply isn't true. Science can't prove or disprove God. Science and faith are not mutually exclusive. They're not completely opposed. Nature tells us something about who God is. And one can hold to a sound interpretation of Genesis and believe in miracles and respect the authority and the inspiration of the word of God while still appreciating and acknowledging the indispensable and the valuable role of science in our world. Science has brought about so many good and God-honoring things in our world. It is good and God-honoring that medical advances have been made where people don't have to suffer as much as they once did through physical ailments. Science has brought about good and wonderful things. And Christians should be thankful to God for modern science. Now, all that stuff is good to know. But what else should we consider? After all, we're going to leave here this morning and we're going to go out into a world where many people assume that science and faith can't coexist. A world where many people assume that you have to choose one or the other. A world where many people assume that there are no religious scientists, especially Christian scientists out there. What do we take with us to go out into that world and to be a positive witness for Christ and to shine the light of the gospel in a world that is so skeptical? Well, a few suggestions. Number one, we as Christians should not be scared of science. We shouldn't be scared of it. As we just talked about, it is a wonderful, good, God-honoring thing that has brought about incredible blessings. And we shouldn't run away from it. And as far as those difficult discoveries that make us rethink what we thought we knew, we as Christians believe that if something is true, that something is from God. And thus we have nothing to be afraid of. Anthony Flew was a famous atheist who became a Christian after engaging more with the science of his day. We often ask as if, If I engage with science, if I wrestle with these questions, I'm automatically going to lose my faith. Thus, I better not approach them. Well, there are many who have actually taken the exact opposite road. As they learn more about science, they become more convinced of the existence of God. Christians shouldn't be scared of science, but on top of that, Christians should be actively engaged with science. You know, sometimes we talk about how we need Christian doctors, we need Christian teachers and civil servants and police officers and lawyers and any profession you can think of. We need Christians in those places. In the same way, we need Christian scientists who can shine the light of Christ in a field where the light of Christ is often not as bright. On top of that, we as followers of Jesus should be informed of the scientific assumptions that people have. We should educate ourselves on modern science. 
In Acts 17, Paul educated himself on the beliefs of the pagans, and thus he was able to share the gospel of Christ with them more effectively because he knew what they believed. He knew what they thought. It's our job to do the same thing. Number three, we should be realistic about the unfortunate, the sobering fact that some people simply may never be able to get over these issues. It's unfortunate to think about that, but it's also realistic to think about that. You may have heard me share this story before, but Christopher Hitchens was a famous atheist, and late in life, Christopher Hitchens was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And in his final days, Christopher Hitchens was suffering. He was absolutely miserable. It was a terrible way to die. But Christopher Hitchens granted one of his last several interviews to someone who was religious. And the interviewer asked Christopher Hitchens as he's lying on his deathbed, okay, Christopher Hitchens, if proof was available to you, undeniable proof that God existed, In your final days, would you submit to him? And Christopher Hitchens looked the interviewer in the eye and said, no. There are some people who simply will never believe. Someone like Christopher Hitchens reminds us of the Hughes Mearns poem. As I was walking up the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. Some people believe that God is like that man standing at the top of the stairs. We say that we don't believe he's there. But really the issue is that we just wish he would go away. Some people will never believe, maybe because of legitimate scientific objections, or maybe because of other reasons. Maybe it's not so much that they don't believe in God. Maybe it's more that they don't like God. As sobering as that is, we should also keep in mind suggestion number four. That while many people will not accept the gospel, we should also take advantage of opportunities we have to share Christ boldly and consistently as we engage people who don't believe that science and faith can coexist. I recently watched a Debate between a well-known scientist and a well-known Christian who is very, very committed and some would say even stubborn about his understanding of the book of Genesis. And during this debate, the scientist and the Christian went back and forth. They argued why God exists and why God doesn't exist and why you should believe this or why you should believe that. But at the end of the debate, the crowd was allowed to ask questions. And one of the people in the crowd asked the Christian this question. If everything you believe about the book of Genesis was proven to be wrong, undeniably wrong, would you still be a Christian? If you had to rethink everything you thought you knew about the relationship between science and the Bible, science and faith, if that happened, would you still be a Christian? The man looked in the camera and said, my interpretation isn't wrong. Talk about a missed opportunity. What a wonderful opportunity that would have been 
for that Christian man to look people in the eye and say, you know what? If my understanding of Genesis is wrong, if my understanding of modern science is wrong, that doesn't change the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life. That Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus ascended to be with God. And Jesus will return. What a wonderful opportunity that would have been to share the gospel. To share the truth of who Christ is and what Jesus has done. And yet the opportunity was missed. May that not characterize us. As we engage people who truly believe all the assumptions that you can't believe science and you can't have faith at the same time. May we look for opportunities to share Christ clearly and to share Christ boldly. No matter how we have to rethink our understanding of science, it doesn't change the fact that Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again, and Christ will return. And as we wrestle with this question ourselves, as we think about difficult propositions that cause us to rethink things we thought we knew. As we engage science, instead of running away from it or being scared of it, I pray that each and every one of us would leave even more convinced than ever of Psalm 19.1. That the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Because this is our Father's world. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of who you are. We look at a running river, or we look at a tall mountain, or we look at the leaves changing here in a few weeks. We look at creation, and we are just taken aback by your power and your intelligence and your creativity your love and your patience, God. But God, there's also that part of us where we look at creation and we learn that something can't come from nothing and that there is a God out there who ordered the universe. And the reason that we're here and the reason that everything we see exists, it is not by chance. It was not random. Even though we learn all those things, God, we learn even more about you by looking at the cross. And I pray that as we engage a world around us that assumes so much about science and assumes so much about faith, that we would shine the light of your son Jesus into that world. Father, thank you for the privilege that you've given us of looking at your creation, of studying your creation, and using things like science to make people's lives better. But God, I also pray that as we examine your world And as science continues to advance and make new discoveries, that we would be more convinced than ever of who you are. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing a song, and then we're going to have our baptism. After that baptism, we'll sing one more song. You'll be dismissed for the rest of the day. If during that second song you have any questions about 
this sermon, if you have questions about our church, if you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you, whatever it is that you might need from them. So take advantage of that opportunity.